Matter Season 1 in the books. Thank you for all the support. Coming back with a vengeance. Episode 1 of Season 2. This is the one with the other sports. Because as the saying goes, other sports are business. And business is booming. Okay? In our cups this week, it's <laughs> a sour that, ale. Is that a saying? Uh, I, I made it up. I it made it up. Now. We're rolling. Right, carry on. <laughs> it's a saying to me, damn it. In our cups this week, it's a sour ale for, hold on, Tim. North Haven, Connecticut. That's oh, right. Yeah. I found one. I found one. I'm drinking it this week. And you have a triple IPA from Bloomfield, Connecticut. Everyone knows you got to go find Stats No Matter wherever you get your podcast. Set your Apple, Google, Spotify. Follow us on that Twitter handle at Stats Podcast and do the same on Instagram at Stats Don't Matter. Tim, let's get into the show. Uh, let's go, baby. Season two. There's been a lot of things that have happened since the last time we've recorded a podcast, okay? A lot of big things. Uh, one, your boy got a promotion at work. I also got a refrigerator, an actual refrigerator. Nice. Uh, you took on a new job. Yep. I found yep. a colch that I like. I had to shovel my driveway like three fucking times. <laughs> like there was enough ice and snow to actually necessitate getting salt. Wow. Okay, I live in Virginia. Yeah, not happy about this. I live in Virginia. Don't want, I don't, I didn't. I didn't want to use my snow shovel, but I actually had to go get an ice pick from wow. Home Depot so I could like chop up the ice in the driveway. I was I was super mad about that. Not because I was going to drive anywhere, because let's be honest, I wasn't. But just like, come on. <laughs> I learned how to ski. Uh, my five-year-old there learned you. how to ski. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so I, I really thought I was going to go into this looking like that stereotypical guy, like wobbling all over the place, which I saw plenty of before I even even put my skis on like we paid for lessons for my son so that he could go out and learn even though my wife has skied for i don't know 20 years um but just watching him and then the people on the mountain like the training area next to him learning how to fall i was like oh yeah that's gonna be me i broke my wrist the last time i tried snowboarding in high school so i went into this thing thinking like the worst uh to make matters more entertaining um I took on a new position right before we ended last season. And in that transition period, it took a little while for my insurance to get sort of sorted out and signed up. So I learned how to ski without health insurance, which was a nice little Ooh, added excitement. You, uh, you dangerous, dastardly yeah. dude, you. You're playing uh, with fire right there. But dude, uh, I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I'm toot, toot. almost a natural when it comes to it. Like I fell... We've been twice oh, here now we go. for like nine hours. I fell twice, and both of those times were because I didn't commit to either going straight and fast or turning, and I kind of bailed out to make sure I didn't hurt myself on, you know, a tree. Uh, but Let's for the most part, and... like it was, it was my wife. My wife was sort of the the biggest sort of worry wart going into this, and by the end of it, she was like, "I keep forgetting that you have never been on skis before." So I think if you water skied a lot and you've ice skated a ton. It translates pretty well because those are two things that I had done and I kind of applied those sort of mechanics in a push on your outside foot as you're trying to lean into your turn. And like I wasn't doing the pizza French fry, pizza French fry type moves. I was literally just going like I got S turns down at one point. I had this adrenaline moment where my five year old is going to give me a heart attack. Like he's literally going to kill me because. He's a speed demon. He in in the two weeks since we since we last recorded, he's learned how to ride a bike without training wheels and ski and both things he likes to do very very quickly. 
But when we were skiing the second time, we decided to bring him down uh, a blue square. If you're not familiar with it, it's like a couple notches above beginner. It's right below like a black diamond, I think. I don't, I, don't, I still don't know the ratings, but anyway, it was very steep. Uh, he starts going and he doesn't like to turn. He likes to just straight up French fry and go as fast as he can. In fact, turning makes him more nervous than going fast. So he takes off, he goes down around a bend He's out of eyesight now, and I'm yelling at my wife, like, go catch him. Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. Go catch him. She can't hear me because she's got her helmet on. So I'm like, all right, fuck it, and panic. I straighten <laughs> out my skis. I tuck my poles like an Olympic skier and zipped down that mountain faster than I've ever gone on skis before. And the whole time, I'm, like, I'm going to break something. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to break something. Ended up catching up to him, pa- passing him before I could actually slow myself down. And, uh, <laughs> It was like straight adrenaline. I was like, I'm either going to catch him or I'm going to die here. But it was like dad mode had kicked in. But your boy can ski, it's, man. I, I got so say, good. I can it's ski. so good. Everyone, <laughs> welcome to the Stats of Matter podcast with Bodie Miller. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Like I was That's watching... the only male skier I know. At the end of it, I was watching them do like their downhill slalom, like the high school kids. I was like, I bet I could do that. <laughs> My wife was like, oh, Jesus. if you yeah. try that. <laughs> you can't. It's confirmed. You yeah. can't. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, boy. That that's, didn't happen. That's pretty but good. That's pretty I'm, good. I, yeah, I managed. Well, I managed. Thankfully, the snow had just stuck around here long enough. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for that. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and crack into this beer right now. Okay. It's from Timber Ales. Heard a lot about them. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you've ever heard of them before. North Haven, yep. Connecticut. Um, this beer is called I Must Be Dreaming. It's a sour ale with prickly pear, passion fruit, vanilla beans, and milk sugar. Now, if you're a friend of the podcast or if you're a friend of mine, you probably called me a prickly pear at least once in your or my lifetimes. Uh, I don't know why people think I'm a prickly pear. I don't really hate the the, the connotation uh, until I taste this beer, and then if I don't like it, then I'm, I'm going back on it. But uh, let's see here. I can't say I've ever called you a prickly pear or had the uh, inclination to call you a prickly pear, but... Well, I guess you're just missing out. Ooh, oh, what? What is this? Oh, man. That's pungent. That's back, really pungent. We're back on our ASMR grind, I see, as well. Yeah. One thing I love doing is taking the shittiest photos ever for Untapped. Just, mm. just because there are some people with so much effort into it, and their photos look amazing, and they put all this work into it with filters, and I'm like... Yeah, I got time for that. I'm just going to take a snap, yeah. and, and I'm just going to do it. My wife will be like, I can make that photo look better. I'm like, I don't – this is not the point of Untapped. I'm not yeah. trying to get follows from Untapped. It's not yeah. – that's not the thing. So I got a couple guys who, like, whip out their DSLR cameras to take a picture of their beer, the beer they're drinking that night, and more power to them. That's just not my jam. The way that, that much the way that sentence you started, the way that sentence started, I thought we were going to go way past PG-13 for this podcast, but we're good. Don't go back and listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you take a look at this start beer. sliding into some uh, Instagram DMs. <laughs> no, no, we're not. No, we're not. But we got way too many of those weird requests. Like, you know, yep. mis- misspelled words. Hi, I'm over 18. Follow me. Like, no. And sent to 48 people that you don't know. At yeah, the same yeah. Time. yeah. I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I thought about accepting it and then sending a reverse DM to all 48 of those people and saying, please listen to the Stats Matter podcast. But on the on the off chance that they're all bots, too, that was just not going to be a good idea. Anyways, uh, <laughs> this beer pours a nice, I, I don't know what you would call this, almost looks like V8 Splash. You know, it's a 
It's a it's a it's, nice color yes, there. It, does. it is pungent though. I tell you what, I don't really smell any of the milk sugar off the top, and I don't really know what a prickly pear smells like, but I assume it doesn't smell like this. Yeah, that looks like straight up juice. Okay. So, ooh, very tangy, and I think it just gets more sour as you go on the back. I don't really taste the um, the vanilla bean or the milk sugar that much, but I do. There's a ton of passion fruit, and I, and I think the you know the top snap might be a little prickly pear. I don't I don't mind it. I've been drinking a lot of lagers, colches, and pilsers lately, and yeah. my and my, my beer cabinet has been filled up with a lot of barrel aged stout. So. Stay tuned. I might uh, I might go ahead and uh, and drop a couple of those on you next couple episodes here. But I I'm not sure what to think about this. I do like the flavor profile, but I think it's just there's a lot that's going on in this beer. And sometimes with sour beers, if you got too much that's like going on, it kind of takes away, right? Like when you get a sour beer, you kind of want that saltiness or you want that fruit sour. And this is a little bit of salty sour sweet i don't know if that's even possible to go across the palate that many ways so <laughs> you know I'll, I'll go ahead and i'll give it a three seven i i think it's it's good i don't think i there's no way i could drink four of these in a row i don't hmm. even know what my palate my palate wouldn't even be on this planet by the end of it it would you know i mean geez look at this thing it looks like the you know the the surface of mars shout out to nasa uh you know what <laughs> i mean like uh, by the time i finished four of these i would probably think i was the you know the perseverance rover Fair enough. I've heard of that brewery, but I don't know if I've had any of their stuff, to be honest. Yeah. Um, shout out to the uh shout out to the brew shop in Arlington. It's where I get the the beers from. I get all my kegs from there because they're they're fantastic and they just celebrated five years. So shout out to them. Um and I got like one of these sour packs and hoppy packs for their like their birthday. They made like some mixed uh packs. So I got like some good good IPAs. I also picked up a bottle of <laughs> Jay Wakefield. So <laughs> that might make it into the future. Yeah, we got a, yeah. Uh, we had a a listener. So one of the I'm gonna post a uh, episode, uh, maybe after this one that we didn't do ourselves. Um, I was a guest on uh, another podcast for a woman by the name of Lauren DeCredico, who runs a program called Wicked Psyched. Um, anyway, I hopped on. Uh, we chatted with her for a little bit, and that's going to come up. But uh, her uh, boyfriend is a avid listener of the fan since since day one, and called us. Oh, out shout for, out to him! Yeah, and called us out for our lack of stouts. I know I've done a couple of them, but um, oh. I told him we'll have we, to. Uh, we'll have did to we get just back get a it. like a? We just get like a one or a two star. What's in my cup review? Yes, I think so. Let's go. I think I think reality right. is setting in. But it is ironic that you just said you had a closet full of stouts. I'm usually the stout one on the program mm. here, so mm-hmm. getting us both involved. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's coming for you, man. It's coming. Uh, Shout out to uh, thanks. Thanks for pronouncing that last name. I didn't know how to how to say it. That was a. Uh, it was like a foreign language to me. Uh, Decredico. Decredico. Yeah. Was, Decredico. Go 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 follow at Wicked Psych on uh, on Instagram. Right, sports psychology, and go go download the episode. Listen to it this morning. Very good. Very good. Yeah, stuff. yeah. And uh, to her boyfriend Dan, we got some stouts coming for you, buddy. All Dan right. Decredico. No, nah, no, nah, they're not married. No, I know. No, I know. He gave us a one star review. That's why he gave him his girlfriend's last name. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll chat about her a little bit more as we get into the episode, too, because that is one worth uh, worth worth diving into and, and following. Um, she's into, uh, She does a lot of sports psychology. She does a lot of just general 
sort of mental well-being. Uh, great little follow. But anyway, that's not the point of this yep. segment. It's to drink this beer that I'm holding in my hand. Uh, I got oh, yeah. a nine-year anniversary triple IPA from uh, one of the local shops uh, close to where I work in Bristol, Connecticut. Um, this one's actually contract brewed from Thomas Hooker Brewing, which is another local one that does um, some pretty decent beers. But Relic is one of those, for me, uh, when they do it right, they do it well, and it's a great beer. Um, their anniversaries tend to be some of their better beers. Uh, another fun thing about Relic is that they have the biggest dark liquor collection, I want to say, in the entire state. So for a brewery, especially one that just kind of went through a little bit of an overhaul, got a new look, um, they have whiskeys, scotches, bourbons from all over the world. Uh, he has a bottle of was it a bottle of scotch that he actually had to go to Scotland to the distillery, talk to the distiller and owner uh, to try and get a bottle of it. And the bottle normally auctions for like seventy five thousand dollars. But they were so excited that he was going to take this and bring it back, and he was going to serve it and offer it up to his uh, consumers that they gave him one of these bottles because they were concerned that all of the bottles that they were selling were going to end up in collections and no one was ever going to have them. So he's got some really, really cool stuff in there. I've seen some Pappy Van Winkle in there. I've seen some mm. A Midsummer's Night's Dram. I've seen a lot of really good stuff. Uh, so check them out. They're in Plainville. Uh, looks like they do contract brew out of, out of Hooker, but... Let's give this one a try. <clears throat> it's their ninth anniversary, so this beer is made with nine different hops. So I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it. Let's see. I mean, you had me at IPA, but uh, you know, all <laughs> this this other stuff is just is just icing on top of the cake. I got a little bit of a cold here, so we're hoping this IPA will pound this into submission. I haven't been drinking as much beer lately. I've been kind of on a a big whiskey kick as of late, and my liquor cabinet went from. You know, a couple modest bottles to uh, probably more than I should admit, including a couple top tier ones. I got a Blanton's up there. I got a Midsummer's Night's Dram. So, um, but but do you have Conor McGregor's proper twelve? Uh, I've kind of fallen off a little bit. I got uh, so spoiler alert. I picked uh, Tampa to win, and I mm. got uh, a couple bottles of whiskey as rewards for that and i got one called lafroig which is a single malt small batch uh scotch and i thought it would be a good introduction back into scotches uh that shit tastes like a straight up cigar it's like an ashtray mm. it is about as scotch as you can get so i'm gonna hold off on on acquiring more scotches because i used to drink nothing but scotches that's kind of fallen off a little bit i'm now back more into the bourbons that sort of smoky peat flavor it's not it for me, at least right now. I'll see if I can maybe get back into that. But proper 12, I'll add to the list. But run to bigger, better, man. The higher proof, the barrel proof, all that sort of stuff. That's my jam right now. But all right. Uh, you know, the, the correct answer, huh? the correct answer to is, oh, is it proper 12? Is who the fuck is proper 12? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sorry. Sorry. Right, sorry. Right, sorry. Right, get right, get right. it. Relic <laughs> anniversary number nine. <sighs> For some reason, I was about to just pound that whole beer for some reason. Wrong, wrong, wrong podcast. Wrong conversation. <laughs> uh, wow. That is incredibly smooth for 
a triple. I think this is the third or fourth triple I've had on the podcast so far. I had this one. I had one from Armada. Uh, Who's the other one? I can't remember where the other ones were, but this is pretty solid. It's There's almost no bitter. A lot of times you get these triple IPAs. They have that really harsh, like that alcohol bite on the end, like Trillium. Uh, Trillium triples tend to go back. Either they taste completely smooth and have no bitter, or it's just a mouthful of alcohol on the way down. Um, this is this is surprisingly smooth. It has just enough of a bitter to remind you that it's an IPA that you're drinking, but all the hops kind of blend together. The one thing it doesn't taste like is any one in particular. So it's just sort of like a mashup of all the hot flavors that are in. They're, they're just combined in, into one drink. So it's incredibly smooth. I have to say that. It's soft. kind of has more of like a, a lager crisp to it. It's not as opaque as I was expecting it. I know you guys can't really see it, but it's like... Yeah, I expected it to be hazier. Yeah, it's like semi-see-through, which as of late, I'm I'm kind of more into some of the, the lighter IPAs. So this is kind of hitting a little bit of a sweet spot for me, and this may be just perfect timing for this beer. Rating-wise, I'm going to give it a, a 4-2. I've had, I've had better triples. I've had really bad triples. Um... I think this is one of the better beers I've had from Relic. I have a couple others in the fridge right now. Uh, I was actually shocked when I, I saw this one come through. But, uh, yeah, no, that's that's really good. You get a lot of those fruit-forward notes, a little bit of the bitter on the, the tail end on the way out. But it's kind of like a crispier IPA, not something you would really expect out of a, a out of a triple. So, thoroughly impressed. Yeah, 4-2. Fantastic. Hmm. Triple IPA, Tim. That's that's gonna be your new name. Yeah, it's. I can't put my finger on it. Like what, what I would even compare it to. Because a lot of, like right off the bat, you get like a lot of the sort of citrusy, sort of like over the top fruit, and then it just sort of mellows out into just a a, a nice beer. It doesn't have like a, I don't know. That's a good beer. It's a good beer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to think on it, and as I drink it throughout the episode, it's going to come to me. And I, you're, what I, you're, what you're talking about this like it's a 4-2, but you're, you're trying to give this thing a 4-5. That's what it sounds like. No, 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 no. I think it's a 4-2, but I'm trying to figure out Lead the, better, in the, the best witness. way. I want to I wanna try and find a better way to describe it. I'm just having a hard time describing it. It has like characteristics of like a West Coast IPA mixed in with like portions of a New England IPA. It's like right in the right in the middle. It's got the crispiness of a West Coast with that slight bitter, but it's got all that normal, like, big New England sort of juicy, fruit-flavored, just mashed together on top of all that. It's very, it's very, very good. I would drink it. I would drink this anytime I saw it, but to try and describe it to someone, just to say, oh, it tastes like a juicy IPA, wouldn't be doing it justice because it's, oh, yeah. it's a little bit more than that. Well, for some people, when they go to the store and you say, "Oh, it's it's hazy, it's juicy, it's hoppy," they go, "All right," and then just grab it. They, they don't care. They don't, yeah. It's like I need I need the uh, I need the four pack du jour that uh, retails for eighteen <laughs> to twenty four dollars. Like, do you have any? Yes, you do. Who makes it? I don't care. <laughs> How many hops? All of them. Fantastic. Let's go. All right, <laughs> those are what's in our cup this week. I can't believe I actually finally after giving you so much guff for North Haven, Connecticut. 
I had one of the beers and I gotta admit, ain't disappointed. So find those yep. beers wherever you can. Tim, let's talk some sports now. The last time we talked, we talked about football. And football's over. Although we're going to get into a little bit of the drama that's happened this offseason. But first, mm-hmm. got to talk about golf. So if you're not a golf yeah. fan, go ahead and skip ahead in the podcast. But thank you for downloading and subscribing on all your favorite social <laughs> platforms. Uh, United, the U.S. Golf Association from Axios Sports jointly announced earlier in February that they will explore four potential changes to curb distance gains in golf. Okay, Changing the specifications of equipment changing how manufacturers test equipment, limiting the maximum club length to 46 inches, and allowing tournament organizers to implement equipment standards. They said, quote, golfers need to understand, this is the USGA, golfers need to understand that this every generation hits the ball further is affecting the game negatively. We're just trying to fit the game of golf back onto golf courses. That was USGA CEO Mike Davis via Golf Week. I'm not a great golfer. (laughs) <laughs> I can barely get off the tee, uh, you know, 150, 200 if I'm super, super lucky and everything goes my way. I connect, the wind's behind me, no one looks, and the ball just continues to roll. All of those things have to happen. But my goodness, this is like, I don't want to say it's tone deaf, but it's just kind of one of those things like, oh, we're very afraid about people hitting the ball further. Come on. Like, think about it. The swing has changed so much that the, the the clubs you use have changed so much. The balls that you hit have changed so much over the past like 20 some odd years. The game is modernized. You know what has modernized? Courses, rules. And now they're like, oh, guys like Bryce are hitting it too far. 48 inch driver. Mm-mm-mm. I don't think we need to allow this. Like, come on, golf. If there's anything you need to be allowing, it's a guy or, or, or a gal bombing off the tee because that puts pressure on every golfer behind them, right? You know, if you get off the tee and you get three quarters away down the fairway, that changes your club selection. It also kind of gives you a little bit of a boost if you really get after it off the tee box. I just don't think this is the right way that they need to be going, right? All kinds of mechanics have changed. People are putting more money into every aspect of golf from the clothes that they wear, from the training that they they do. And, like, and now you want to change the rules? it just seems like this is something that should have been done on the way up. And the Axios uh, sports article asked the question, like should courses expand, keep up with modern golfers and and should you have more par fives and even some par sixes or should equipment be altered to reduce distance? Now think about this in baseball. People weren't using metal bats at the professional level because they would probably just hit them into next week. Okay. You got the, you got the bats. Now you have cork bats, you got juice balls, all of those things add into it. But baseball said, we know distance is a thing, and we know that our fast our, our players are going to get faster and stronger when they hit. So what we need to do is we need to find a way to limit the amount of spin they can, they can get off that ball, and that's why we think you're going to go forward with a wooden bat. I'm not saying golf needs to go back to wooden clubs, but I'm saying if brands like Callaway and Mizuno and TaylorMade are creating instruments that the right golfer in their testing environment can launch it 3, 330, 340. This is something that you need to be paying attention to. And you shouldn't be saying, Oh, we need to look at this. We need to, we need to give individual courses like, you know, the ability to say, Hey, welcome to the masters at Augusta. You can't hit further than 280 off the tee. Like what? Why would you do that? You know what I mean? Like 
at, at that point to me, it's almost like you're saying, listen, this is a par four. It's now a par three. That, that's what you should do. You should either have, you know, longer holes on some of these courses you're creating and then kind of, you know, schedule it out, send some, some other, you know, competitions that way, or you need to drop par or you need to say, Hey, on a couple of these holes, you know, the largest club you can use is a three wood. It just doesn't make sense to me that like they're afraid of the distance and the gains when that is helping revolutionize golf. I, I just don't understand it. Yeah. It's, um, and when you, when you go back and you look from, you know, the last hundred years or so, there has been a steady increase over time, just year after year, without any major advancements in the technology. I think what we're seeing, we're seeing both more athletic golfers, like compare the field now to what the field was back in like the 60s or 70s, where the longest drive was like 274. That was the, the the longest drive on the tour was it usually in like the mid 270s. It went up a little higher and a little higher. When Tiger came into the league around like 2000, uh, he was only hitting like 280 or 295, give or take. And the, longer, the longest drive that was on the field was in like the, the 300, the low, low, like 301, 302. And whatnot. Now, to completely ignore and say that equipment isn't part of the problem would be disingenuous because it is, right? Like, there's a stark increase in distance when the Pro V1 was first introduced. Balls have only gotten better from that point on. Um, but I think the bigger factor has to be the type of talent and the athletic ability of the people you are drawing into your sport. Now, the long drives, just like home runs, are what bring people into the stadium. They're what make it very exciting. But I decided to do a little digging for this season as sort of like a microcosm as to what like the rest of the seasons might look like. And I took the current top 10 golfers as far as distance goes and i was actually a little surprised to see how that kind of matched up so in that top we'll say top nine because the 10th player has only done uh one event um but this is the list list is available on our social media channel definitely want to check it out all right so here's the list it's uh bryson dechambeau roy mcroy wyndham clark cameron champ dustin johnson uh matthew wolf luke list Will Gordon, Dylan Fratelli. Now, there's a reason you're not going to hear or have never heard of a lot of those names. Because they are nowhere near stiffing the top 20, 30, 40, 50, anywhere in the top of the FedEx Cup list. But they are some of the longest drivers on the course. Obviously, Bryson DeChambeau being the longest of all of them, which is what we talked to, is what we talked about before. But what I then went and did is I compared driving, accuracy, greens and regulation, their putt averages, their save percentages, eagles, birdies, pars, bogeys, birdies per round, and where they stand in the FedEx Cup. And despite Bryson being the longest drive on the entire course, the only category 
he is in the top 10 is Eagles. Every single other category, he is well outside of the top 20 in most of those categories as far as driving accuracy. Um, his driving accuracy is about 59%. Uh, the, the leader, the FedEx Cup leader, Patrick Cantlay, he's 619 Uh In fact, the average of those top nine is 53.96 compared to Cantley's 61. Uh, in almost every single accuracy category, all of them fall behind. There is Eagles, which many of them lead. And when I say lead, I'm saying they have like one or two more on the year than anyone else. Outside of that, they're almost all 100 birdies or less or, or more behind the current FedEx Cup leader. Uh, birdies per round, they all average at least half a birdie less per round. Uh, bogeys, they also fall well behind. Um, pars, same thing across the board. So despite what we keep saying as far as distance, and it does make it more difficult, it still shows that accuracy will continue to reign supreme. So are you going to get the ball down the course faster? Sure. But to see guys like Canley, who's currently leading, whose average driving distance is 300 yards, he's tied for 60, 66th on the entire league, I mean, on, on, in the entire field, which puts him maybe slightly above the average mark. The lowest distance average on tour is 271.1. The highest, obviously, with Bryson is 32.39. The, the, the big question mark here, though, everyone, or at least almost everyone who's professionally on tour has access to the same equipment. A lot of these guys are sponsored by a lot of the same groups. In fact, you can go on YouTube right now and look up Titleist. You could look up um, any of the brands that are out there and find YouTube videos where they do these little group competitions where they have all of their signed golfers together, like Tiger, Rory, Dustin, all of those guys out doing these little skills competitions together. Now, if you kind of compare all of those guys together, you're going to see that the distance is going to range drastically amongst all of them. But some of the guys who are at top of some of these top 10 positions in, in Eagles and Birdies and things like that are guys like Justin Thomas, who's averaging only about like 305 off the tee. So Jordan Spieth, when he's on, he's usually 300 or below and just recently started find, finding himself above the 300 mark. But he's another one where saves are a big, uh, a big benefit for his over everybody else in the field. His putting average is a lot better. Of those top 10, uh, sorry, of those top nine in driving distance that we just talked about, only one of them is even close to the top 10, and it's Maury McElroy, and he's 28th on the list compared to everybody else. So... These guys aren't out here winning tournaments. They're not out here taking FedEx Cup points away from a lot of the other guys who are on the team, are, who are on the course, who may not drive as far. In fact, a lot of these guys are falling far behind. So in that top nine, the only guys that are in the top, we'll say the top 20, is Dustin Johnson and Bryson DeChambeau. 
Outside of that, the next closest is Wyndham Clark at 32nd. Roy McIlroy is in 40th. Uh, Matthew Wolf is in 24th. Everyone else is in the hundreds. Yeah. Everybody else is in the hundreds. So, sure. Is it making it seem like the courses are more difficult and more reachable? Sure. Is it actually translating to more wins, more FedEx Cup points? No. And granted, this is a small sample size. It's just the, the top guys in the league. But keep in mind, Bryson DeChambeau is 323. But number nine on the list is only 312. And what else, what else is kind of surprising is that the, the distance differential is growing wider as well. So despite all having access to the same types of technology, the same brands of technology, the differential used to only be within like 30 points despite having the same equipment. Now it's closer to 60 yards, and a lot of that has to do more with technique. You have incredibly athletic guys who saw what Tiger was able to do who came in, worked out, physically got stronger and faster, and that translated into further distance off of their drives. The The byproduct of that is the careers tend to not last quite as long. You're already seeing injuries to guys like Rory. You saw Tiger, who we'll talk about in a little bit, and all of his back surgeries. You're starting to see Brooks Kepka, who ended up losing weight, kind of changing up his way a little bit because he was starting to find injuries this last weekend. Uh, he was talking about having neck pain, which was before it was like shoulder and back pain. And then it was hips before that. So you're seeing these stronger guys who are starting to have more injuries at a younger age, because let's not forget back in like, let's call it the forties through the eighties, the you weren't in your peak golf performance until you were in like your mid to late thirties. Now guys are coming in to the PGA hitting peak and when you start talking about guys who are in their mid to late thirties, then it starts to be are these guys old on the on the older side of things. Like the oldest guy on this list is Luke Liston and Dustin Johnson, who are both thirty six. Everybody else is underneath of that. Most of them are still in their twenties. So as the pots continue to grow and these purses begin to get larger and larger and larger, it's going to continue to attract a much larger more athletic audience when they can see, oh, if I really focus on golf, which is a skill game where strength comes secondary, it's all based off of ability, and I have a chance to participate and win, that seems like a very good avenue to to, to follow if I want to stay in sports. Because you used to say golfers weren't athletes, but I would like to see you say that to, like, you know, Rory, who's squatting 400 pounds, you know, Guys or like Bryson. Brooks, yeah. Bryson, who takes a very technical approach. A lot, all of his clubs are the same length, and they're the same length, so he doesn't have to learn how to swing different clubs. So how are you going to regulate that if every club in his bag is already the same length? Some of them are already shorter than what they would normally be for someone his size. Some of them are already a little longer, which doesn't work to his advantage than they would be normally. But his mindset was, okay, instead of having to worry about how to swing 18 clubs differently i'm going to learn how to swing my swing to perfection and then i'm going to have the clubs adjusted to match how i swing which is like a scientific approach that he's taken to it so a regulation isn't necessarily going to translate you already saw what it was like when they got rid of the belly putter now you can still use that long putter you just can't anchor it and you're seeing a lot of the same results sure did you see a little uptick when you were able to anchor it and keep it more steady against your body yes you were but 
making a slight club regulation did it make that much of a difference i don't necessarily think so it was just the technique it was something different you're starting to hear the same thing with the introduction of shorts and hoodies to the to the tour now but uh, <laughs> i think it's a i think it's a uh, this, this is why golf is like just struggling to get like really really out there you know what i mean just like these, I, these I mean, are I, these are arcane rules they are and they're making they're making headway into the, some of the way that the, the game is managed like you used to be able to sit on your couch call in when you saw an infraction and they would verify it and then enforce it you can't do that stuff anymore and it is making strides i mean it's got some of the biggest viewership it's ever had so i don't know if i would necessarily agree and say that it's struggling to sort of reach the peak if you watched any of those tournaments when they were at full capacity from a, a fan's perspective there are thousands and thousands especially in an event where tiger is playing and he's playing well there are thousands and thousands of people in there anybody who who doesn't know what that looks like go back last year and watch the major that tiger won as he was marching down towards the final hole the sea of people that were there probably could have filled like a baseball stadium there were so many people there so i think it's doing an okay job bringing in younger newer sort of fresh blood but yeah, there are still some things there. I think I just, distance distance is a talking point. And it's something yeah. easy to get everyone hyped up about. Yeah. But if you really dial into it, it's I don't think the, the I don't think the sticks are making as big of a difference as the athletes themselves are. Now, yep. I'd if all you're saying is if the conversation is let's handicap our athletes and make it harder for them to do their job, that's a different conversation than saying let's blame the equipment. Because, like, I, I've driven the ball over 300 yards, and I'm not a professional golfer. I like Ooh, it's go all... up with your bad self, Tim. Yeah. Triple it's IPA, all... Tim. Woo! No, it's, 300 it's, yard driving, Tim. It's it's having an athletic background. It's having some athletic ability. It's having worked on a swing. Can I consistently hit 300 yards? No, it needs to be like. One perfect conditions, one out of every like 25 to 100 shots. And is it going to go straight? Not all the time, but I, I do have a long drive. Like I would be higher than like the, the current tour low. Like I know my average is probably closer to like 285, 290. 300 is a really long drive. It ended up, being, I don't even know what it ended up being. I don't know if I'd necessarily trust the phone apps, but we, we walked it out. It was like 315 or something like that. The, Straightest oh, with, drive with a total head. carry. Yeah. yeah hey, yeah. everyone, welcome to the Sassamer podcast with uh, Tim Tiger Woods Cronin. Uh, I'm <laughs> your, your faithful co host. No, we're I, just I, I see about we... all, we're finding about all the two opportunities I didn't take advantage of when I was a kid, apparently. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, mom and dad. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I hear what you're saying here. And, and I do think that the, the, the boogeyman here is, you know, all this, this length off the tee. I, I think it's like, look at this left hand over here. Look at this left hand over here. This is a problem we have to fix. The problem you need to fix is people who are, you know, just going to walk right off the course because their putting and chipping game is unreal. I don't care if you can go 315 off the tee. What I'm afraid of, if I was playing in a foursome with you, is we get to the second shot, I'm taking out a three wood, and you're like another 115 yards ahead of me, and you, you're pretty much on the green in two. That's what I'm worried about, right? You know, but yeah. you act you have to make the shot. You can't just bomb it off the tee and everything is great. I, I said that earlier. I'm like, oh, it just makes you feel so much better. Of course it does. But you still got to connect on the second or the third shot if you need it on a par five. 
And when I was playing the other day, got, I got paired up with some folks. Let's just say they were much, much better than me. Okay. And there was an older fella and he wasn't great. He wasn't that great off the tee, but I tell you what, that dude was a sniper from about 150 yards out. Like we scrambled and, and we got onto the green almost every time off of his shots. His iron play was amazing. His like his bump and run game, incredible. His putts, stupefyingly good. But you know, something he struggled with a little bit was trying to get power off the swing on the tee. So it was a joke to him. He was like, "Hey, yeah, you guys hit out the tee. I'll do I'll do all the work down range." And it was like, "Yes, Steve, you will. <laughs> Thank you very much for this." But it's like golf. You're saying that the ratings are good and that they're they're getting more sets of eyes on it, like. This isn't what they need to be doing. They don't need to be saying distance is a problem. Distance has been minimal gains. And as you just pointed out in that, in that awesome research, by the way, just because you have the longest drive doesn't mean you're making the most points in a cup. You're not threatening to get a lot of trophies. Like you still have to hit the second or the third shot. So I think this is sort of sh short-sighted. And golf is like, hey, you know, we'll, we'll probably leave the final decision up to individual courses and it'll only affect, you know, like, you know, professionals. So for all of us who aren't members at courses or we are members, but we're not trying to get in the waste management, you know, open or, you know, the, the <laughs> FedEx cup, like this doesn't apply to us. So why did you say it? Like, this yeah. is not news to me. It's anyone who's golfed, especially with someone uh, of an older age persuasion has heard the phrase, uh, drive for show, pop for dough, because it is a hundred percent accurate. Like, there's a couple yeah. courses, and the course they put, uh, there were a couple holes in the course they played this weekend, but they had drivable par fours, and they had some that were almost reachable, like fives for some guys. And still, like they just made the they made those holes difficult. And could you reach the green? Sure. How many of them actually reached the green? Not many, so you still had to chip up onto what was a very fast green. A lot of men ended up with birdies, which for me is, is a fine score. If you look at the scores and you see the shock value of like someone putting up 18 under for a tournament, um, distance isn't really... Now, one of the things I didn't, I didn't factor into this list is, is like iron distances, but that, that's a whole different ball game where we have to go iron by iron. I'm not about to do that to you guys, but um, no accuracy is still the key. And what you're seeing is like these like super athletic guys who are able to get up and do things and shape shots and do things that they're just not used to. Mark Howard, one of the, the, the players that was leading last week, uh, he's known for hitting his four iron. Like some people hit a wedge. Now that's, that's not, the technology of the club that's just how he is able to hit that particular club your four iron is generally 80 yards longer than your longest iron you know give or take depending on on loft angles and whatever generally it's a much much farther uh club than you would your longest your longest wedge that you're playing with like a sand wedge or, or a fairway wedge or something like that but he can hit it with the same loft the same spin and you can go online. That's another one. You can go on Instagram right now and find it. You can go on YouTube right now and find it. And he gets out and he demonstrates that where he's taking it and he's literally plopping it around the pin from the same distance as some people hit uh, their nine iron and does it from further back with the same sort of accuracy and the same sort of touch as he does with the nine iron. 
Is that equipment? No, it's not equipment. That's just ability. That's more people at a younger age putting more attention on their golf game because they see the fame and fortune that comes with the Tiger Woods era of golf now and the attention and the focus that guys like Brooks Kepka and Roy McIlroy, uh, Tony Finau, all of those guys, Ricky Fowler has really touched and become sort of a, a fan favorite amongst younger fans. He was out wearing the flat bill, bright orange before anyone else was doing the bright colors. So I, I don't think distance is it. You know, who am I? Some stupid casual player who likes to ramble on about uh, sports you, on a podcast. You, you but. apparently can hit 300 off the off the tee. So I mean, everyone should be paying attention to what you have to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know who else? Uh, you know who else hits 300 off the tee? Patrick Cantlay, the current FedEx Cup leader. Ah, there we go. Well, I mean, maybe this will all get blown to shit if he ends up winning. But uh, you yeah. you did bring up Tiger earlier. If you've been around a computer lately. Uh, you've obviously, well, why did I even say computer? Everyone has phones. If you've been around your phone lately, you definitely knew that uh, TMZ reported um, early last, well, a couple weeks ago, that uh, Tiger Woods was in a a pretty scary car crash. Um, He was uh, on the way to film some content for a celebrity golf uh, outing that he was doing. Uh, He sustained really kind of serious injuries, a lot of, you know, broken legs, kind of had to be excavated from the car and, you know, I, I don't think it's fair to ask the question without sort of prefacing the discussion, right? When we say, what does this mean for his career? Is a comeback possible? And where does he go in the sport from here? We're not saying he can't do it, right? I mean, the guy, as you, as you pointed out earlier, you know what I mean? When a lot of people thought he was down and out, he came back, won a Masters. You, need, you do need to look at the specifics of it, though, right? The guy has had a lot of back surgeries. Um, you know, he's... Missed a lot of, uh, of of tours and a lot of opens that he could have won, right? And I don't think you can really ever take away from Tiger what he's done for the game, how he's grown it, how he's you know been an influential player, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think that we care too much about hardware and championships, and and then people will be like, you know, strongly in the Jack Nicholas camp, or people will be strongly in the Tiger Woods camp about who's the goat of golf. But I don't really think it's up for a debate. I think one grew the game to to be kind of a pastime and one grew the game to be taken seriously. You know, I, I I don't, I, they're different eras, but I think one is, is strongly, you know, in the lead, even if he doesn't have the hardware because of many, many reasons, but what I do think, and, and definitely, you know, thoughts to, to tiger and I, and I hope he gets well soon. If the injuries as reported, you know, broken legs and getting a rod inserted into your legs, like that, that's going to make just, even coming back uh, and being able to walk again and be, and be normal, right? Just to be able to even enjoy life. That's going to make things super difficult. I don't want to be like, oh, stats of matter said Tiger's career is over. Maybe his playing career at a competitive advantage may, may come to an end here. Uh, so any comeback that, you know, if he wants to match or exceed Nicholas in, in, in trophies, like, okay, is that really what we're at at this point? Is that really all that matters? Like, what Tiger's done for the sport is irreplaceable. And I think that, you know, we may see in the next few years, we may see an exodus of professional golfers whose best playing days are behind them. But they 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 see a guy like a Finau or a Bryson and they say, okay, if you're willing to let me coach you hard, I think we can grow your game to an incredible level and I can bring you to be a better golfer than you are right now. 
And as long as people check their egos, I think I think that could do a lot for the sport. If I, uh, this would never happen, of course, but if I were to go to a course and Tiger was like, hey, man, let, let me just roll with you. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to hit a couple out there just to kind of get in the swing of things, but I'm going to give you free smoke. Like, I'm, I'm going to give you all the tips. Like, who wouldn't want that, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that Tiger is just going to be one of those PGA professionals who makes, you know, uh, tips and tricks videos and hawks them for Venmo money. Like, that's, that's not what he's ever going to do. His influence is too much. No, no. But you do got to ask. The man doesn't ever have to work again if he exactly. chooses exactly. not to. Yeah. But I don't, I don't necessarily see him recovering and then just going and commentating on golf, being a, you, you know what I mean, like a, a, a person on the inside. Like, could he, could he be the, the USGA CEO? Could he find a way to? I mean, is he going to write a book? Is he going to talk about how to, how to grow the game even further to the next level? And I think that's kind of where we're at now. It, it, if his professional playing career for competitive advantages is derailed for a few years, you can make the argument that he he might not ever return to form. But then you also have to ask the question, like, is that most important? Like, do you yeah. really want to go out and win another championship or are you trying to walk and teach your son how to play golf at the highest level? I feel like it's it's tough because – Look at Tiger from, and this is just looking at him through the scope of what we know, right? And that has been family in recent years has taken a big precedent. Um, but golf and finding his way to be competitive, especially after kind of that refresher with the Masters win and the competitive play that he's been a part of and finding some of that success. Um, but I can't help but wonder, like, at what point is the effort no longer worth it for him, right? Like, are those few majors, are the are the last few majors to really put him over the top, uh, which I think he's already firmly cemented himself as the best that's ever done it, given the time frame that he's played, what he's done for the sport, the injuries he's had to come back from, like all of that. Like how much golf has changed since he stepped onto the course. He's another one of those where compare him up against all of the guys who sort of came in at the same time. You have Sergio Garcia, you have BJ Singh, you have all these guys who are playing at a high level with him who are relatively obscure. Now you, you kind of get surprised to see him at the top of the leaderboard every couple of years. Uh, And he's just always one of those that's in the conversation. I think at this point he can choose to do, whatever he wants do i think he might try and come back and maybe play a little bit more even if it's on like the championship circuit uh potentially i could see him being um the american coach at you know what every year when the team selections come around i can see him kind of being the coach going into some of those events but on top of having alex smith type injuries on both of his legs yeah, in more than one spot and a shattered ankle. He was really struggling to kind of get himself back into peak performance on a consistent basis with his back, the way that it was. And now you're going to tack on a completely shattered ankle that, you know, had to be rebuilt. Uh, you know, you're basically every bone in your thigh had to be reformed and re rebuilt. It's a really long path, and he's not even out of the woods yet. We kind of saw with Alex Smith what happened where he had the same injury. He looked fine, 
And then suddenly, there you go, you have uh, a, a, an issue with an infection that ended up almost taking his leg. So I don't even really want to kind of venture into what golf might look like. I think we have a long road ahead just to see him kind of up and moving around. I know he's got a lot of drive. He's pretty persistent. He's been really uncomfortable and in a lot of pain over the last few years. So part of me wonders, like, for yourself, how much you want to really kind of push that envelope to get back out there when, like, you've done as much as you could for golf. Like, there's nothing else there. I think winning the major last year was sort of, for me, the final, like, icing on the cake. Like, if he went on and won other, others, you'd be like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Look at him. He's still winning them. But it didn't have the same impact as what last year's did, where he had year after year of struggle, and, like, Tiger's lost it, and where's Tiger? And, and bam, holy shit, he went the, the one of the biggest tournaments of the year, uh, if not the biggest tournament of the year. And kind of refreshed where he was, and... You saw him come in, he had some success again this year, and then he kind of had the injury again, in which he just had surgery. A lot of the speculation when this happened was, was he on pain meds? Look at him, he's all hopped up at his press conference, and he's just had back surgery, they're all drugs, drugs. You know, the internet's a bunch of assholes, and it's a it's a dark place. A whole bunch of assholes. But, unfortunately, that is stuff you have to take in mind. Like, he has a long road ahead of him with a bumpy history of dealing with a lot of that stuff. So I don't know. I don't want to speculate quite yet. My gut kind of tells me that this might be, this might push him out of the PGA tour. I could still see him being around and doing the Ryder cup. I can see him doing like, you know, the Olympic teams. I could see him doing a lot of things that are still in golf. I might even, I could even see him coming and playing some of the, the championship, uh, playing in those rounds. I, I don't know. It's tough. I'm just, I'm more focused on and more concerned about like his overall well-being and what walking is going to look like a year yep. from now. So hundred percent. Yep. Let's see. We'll have to see. I wouldn't be shocked if this was kind of the, 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 you know, no, really no pun intended, but sort of that final straw that pushed him over the edge to be like, okay, I've pushed my body to the limits. I've given everything I can for this. Now I need to worry about coming back from the health of myself. And my family, golf is completely secondary. And since golf is a game of repetition and practice and knowing and feeling out your swing, like, sure, are there skills that you can carry on and and teach other people and you can reteach yourself? Sure. But if you want to play at a really, really, really high level, your swing, you know that like the back of your hand. And he's just unfortunately just not going to have the same swing. So. A long, long uphill battle from here, which is too bad. And we wish him the best <clears throat> on his road to recovery for sure. Um, I, I, I tend to think, just like you do, that that he, he will probably get back out there someday. But, I mean, it's just, un- unfortunately, it's the draw, right? Oh, he broke both of his legs. But when, he's, when is he making a comeback? And you're like, oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like, the guy is just barely out of the hospital yet. Like, he, he hasn't even really put weight on both of his feet yet. Like, why don't, why don't you stop trying to you know, hypothesize when he's going to return to form and yeah. when he's going to challenge someone like the, the game could have changed so much between now and then, but it, it's, yeah. it's good to have the, a frank conversation about it. Yeah, it was, it was good to see. I, w- I will say one of the kind of the, one of the big eye openers was anybody who watched last Sunday and just saw, even if they weren't wearing the same color, but you had people across 
all the LPGA, the PGA, some of the other tournaments that were going on at the same time. You had announcers and broadcasters. You had the players. If they weren't wearing the colors, they were there talking about Tiger Woods, what he meant to the game. You had some of the guys who are up-and-comers like Tony Finau and Morikawa and, and guys who came out and said that without Tiger, I probably wouldn't be here. He was a, a great example of like what everyone is is striving to be. You had Justin Thomas out there saying like he's a really close friend and he was almost brought to tears. In fact, Morikawa, when he won, ended up saying like, look, I don't think people say thank you enough, so I just want to say thank you to Tiger Woods for everything that he did because he was the reason we got into these things. Uh, it was just kind of really touching and really moving. That might be enough of a, of, of a drive to kind of get him back out for maybe a couple rounds, a couple tournaments a year, but I don't know. Let's see. Let's see how he. Let's see how he walks and moves and and just goes on with regular regular life before we start pushing him to get back out. That's oh, all. I mean, the only thing we need to worry about is the U.S. Golf Association being like, "Hello, Tiger. Welcome back." Um, you know, everything is par three now, and you cannot use anything over than a four iron to hit off the tee because Bryson DeChambeau hit four fifty off the tee the other day. Like, ugh, all right, yeah. <laughs> Let, let's let's move on. Even though the last episode we talked about had some NFL recap because we talked about the Super Bowl, everyone knows that February and March is really where the league year starts, right? A lot of those teams who don't make it to the postseason, they're, they really started their next steps uh, in early January, right? So free agency is a bonanza, and it has been a bonanza, and there has been all kinds of drama-lama, or drama-lama, depending on how you tomato-tomato pronounce that word. Uh, so there are a couple things we got to talk about here. And I think the first thing off the top, uh, the Lions and the Rams, uh, and not the Bears, oh my, came up with <laughs> some weird, weird sort of trade. But, uh, you know, when you think more about it, it, it kind of makes some sense. Uh, Matt Stafford goes to the Rams. Jared Goff goes to the Lions. There's some contract swapping. There's some pick swapping that is going on there. And look, we know I'm a Seattle Seahawks fan. And I've always said, I pounded the table, the NFC West is one of the toughest divisions in football, and this doesn't help it get any easier, right? He, say what you will about Stafford. The guy really put his body on the line for the team, much in the same way that Megatron did, and I don't think he was ever really appreciated outside of Detroit Lions fans uh, the way he should have been, okay? Um, now he gets to go to a team where he has plenty of firepower, a good defense, and a guy who has a – a photographic memory of every play he's ever gone against. Like, okay, come on. Like Madden would have denied this trade. If we were in franchise mode, they'd be like, <laughs> no, no, we can't send Stafford over there. That'd be too much of a competitive advantage. But I, I do, I do see why it happened. The Rams, again, being an NFC West fan, you, you, you get a, a good look at them at least twice a year. Yeah. And I've, I've seen them for a few years now. Like the Rams always had a glass ceiling. And that glass ceiling was scheme. The players were fantastic, but they just were not able to get out of fourth gear on offense unless there was a world-beating wide receiver like that could stretch the defense, like when they had uh, Brandon Cooks there, um, or a world-beating running back until he was injured, like Todd Gurley, right? Like Jared Goff, on paper, didn't really scare anyone. It was the scheme, and it was the talent around him. So this, to me, now like says, okay, so the, the Rams are clearly not fucking around, which they haven't been for a while, but th this is good. I, I think it's also great that Goff gets a, a second chance with the Lions 
he he probably wants to be more the muted guy, but he has a rah rah coach that you know is new over there with uh, Dan Thomas, right? Uh, yeah. Who's a former tight ends coach. So you're you're going to see a new attitude in Detroit. I think it's probably best for all parties. The picks and the contract swapping, like that's fantastic. <laughs> I I just got to say, as an NFC West fan. No, I absolutely didn't want Stafford to come there. But as a football <laughs> fan, as and as a student of the game, I say yes. I, I think this is this is great, and there should be more trades like this where guys who probably are on the back nine of their career um, are like, okay, I want to go to one of these three teams because I want to be able to contend for a championship. And the organization looks and they say, yeah, you've given your body to us for 12, 13 years, so we'll go ahead and do it. So I, I, I don't hate it, I don't love it, but I, I understand it. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, I don't usually dive too much into some of these free agency trades until like it all shakes out, just because you never really know what things are going to look like down the road. Like Houston, for example, is just completely up in the air right now. They got three guys they're trying to sign, but they cut a handful of others. So, you know, Deshaun Watson's looking to get out of there. I think with JJ going to the Cardinals and some of the changes that they made there, I think that might make a landing spot for Deshaun Watson pretty attractive potentially. I know there's going to be a lot of demand for him, even though they said, uh, you know, they're not interested in trading him. He went back to the coaches and said, no, I'm not playing a single game here. So he's going to kind of force their hands. But as far as Goff and, and, uh, and Stafford and those changes go, um, I don't know. I'm, I think I'm kind of on the other side of this where I don't necessarily know if either team really got much out of this. I think I said it the last time we talked about it when we brought that brought that trade up. I think, is it a good change? Just because I think a good change of scenery between the two of them. But when we looked at the numbers, it wasn't a lot different between the two of them overall anyway. Um, I think this, unless we're looking at it from strictly just a change of scenery for Goff, I was also on record all last year saying that the, the the Rams worried me a little bit as a team that didn't really match up what they look like on paper. Like their records were not really a clear indication of what that team was really like, both as far as how many wins they were getting and how they were competing. Uh, so I think this ends up just being, I, I, I think they literally just swapped for the same thing for the sake of getting like a little bit of a different look between those two guys. Goff, I think made out a little bit on the, on, on the, sort of poor end of the stick because now he's going in with a new coach. He's going into a new team. A lot of the weapons he was used to having aren't there anymore. He's got to learn a whole new system where Stafford has kind of been used to this. He was going to get a new coach anyway. So like, what else did he have to lose? But I don't know. I don't know. I feel like we, we need another week or two before we can really dive into some of this free agency stuff. Cause I think there are some bigger changes or some other big changes that are eventually going to come down the pipeline. Um, I, Houston is literally setting themselves up for some very, very big changes. Uh, I think they got three guys that they're gonna try and keep in uh, PJ Hall, uh, Roa Brown, and AJ Moore. They're gonna try and keep some of those guys, but they did get rid of uh, who was it, Sineo Calamity, 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 No, jeez, edit <laughs> that out. Martin? and nick martin um which is is setting up (laughs) some pretty big changes um i mean of the of the three guys up front that they want to try and hold on to one of them is a pretty solid 
uh, a, a pretty solid player in Brown. He's probably one of the better uh, blocking tight ends that they've ever had. But DJ Hall, for every good play he has, he gives up a handful or more that are a little bit more questionable. So I don't know if he's necessarily a starter. Uh, AJ Moore, I don't know if he's a number one or even a number two guy. So I don't know if they're literally just offloading everyone keeping the, the, the low guys in the totem pole just to help clear some space or if they're just looking yeah. at this like, let's just go into a rebuilding year, which is why those are the three guys that they're working on keeping. Um, I don't know. This don't is the Texans you're talking about, right? The Texans, yeah. Yeah, I don't so, know. yeah go ahead. I was going to say, I don't know if I necessarily, like, it's too early to tell how how those changes are going to shape up i think jj was just sort of the first domino no i i think i think jj was probably one of the i think there were there were multiple streams of the dominoes and and i think that the texans if you're if you're watching us from the outside i think the texans are giving you the how to not be uh a gm or a coach for dummies they're they're writing the book for you you know what i mean like that's what i'm saying i think he's the the first domino to fall that's going to cause like the catastrophe that's about to be their upcoming season, right? Oh like yeah, the, they set yeah. that all. Okay, I see what you're GMs saying. Yeah. All, yeah, the GMs all set that in motion, and I think JJ and his departure was going to be the first domino to topple before the rest of them all fall behind. And then next thing we know, in this year or next year, we're going to be talking about a rebuilding year and a rebuilding season for for Houston. I think completely, especially yeah, so- if Deshaun, if they don't trade Deshaun, and Deshaun has to just sit. Well, yeah. the I think at this point, if we're, if we're moving on to the Texans and we're talking about them, they're going to have to do something. I think that there's been a lot that's been excellent and written and discussed about how uh, the Texans really attempted to be the Patriots light. They tried to be the, the Crystal Pepsi <laughs> version yeah. of the New England Patriots, and it did not go well. It did not go well. OK, yeah, you know, some coaches are able to be both GM and head coach. Bill mm-hmm. O'Brien was not it. Um, and Jack Easterly obviously had more influence over that organization than Cal McNair wanted to wanted to discuss. And, you know, it's not just the the comments from the owners that you can't let the inmates run the prison. Yeah. It's not just the fact that D hop uh, and, and Bill O'Brien didn't really get along. It's about the fact that there's a culture around that organization in which they do not value personnel. Yeah, they don't, they want someone to come in and they want someone to follow what the, what the top wants. And I don't think that necessarily the head coach and GM, I mean, Nick Casario is a fantastic guy, right? He did a lot for new England, but you're no longer in new England. You're, you're in a new situation with your franchise quarterback has pretty much said, I don't plan on playing a snap for you. Good luck. So now you've got to go back and you've got to be serious about what quarterbacks are out this year and and what you need to do or trying to get someone in free agency. And the head coach is the first time head coach. He's the only uh, black head coach hired off of, this last round of, you know, head coaching vacancies, like yep. what a way to start for him. You know what I mean? And that's not his fault. Yeah. This, this goes reflect on him though. Yeah. Too but, bad. but this, this goes into a bigger problem. There's always this conversation about who to pay the most. And oh, we, we crunch some stats and quarterbacks who get 12% of the cap. They, they find a way to make the Super Bowl. Yes. Because you can go ahead and spend the money on other defensive players, but there have been some, some franchises, for example, like, Houston Texans. Remember, they had JJ Watt, Jadevian Clowning. <laughs> yeah. you know, like they they had a lot of talent up front. 
They didn't have some talent on the offensive side. I mean, I saw Andre Johnson. Then Watson kind of got there and showed that, hey, we got the grit. We had the resolve. We're going to do this. And then for them to go 8-8 eight eight last year was just terrible. Now, you, again, yeah. you got to take that with, with everything that happened. You fire the coach in the season. But, like, when that clip aired of Deshaun and J.J., when they were walking off the field and, you know, Deshaun said to JJ, I'm sorry, we wasted one of you. Oh no, sorry. The other way. JJ said to Deshaun, I'm sorry, we wasted one of your years. That, that yeah. tells you something fundamentally about the organization. Right. And you got a quarterback that doesn't want to play. And then now JJ Watt goes to the Cardinals again, NFC West guy over here. I'm just fucking tired of Russell Wilson <laughs> having to face a murderer's row of all these defensive ends. But I mean, good for what? Remember, just a few short years ago, Watt got one of these massive extensions that reset the market for defensive ends. And yes, you can talk about injuries and how that has affected him and how he's not been able to play a full season, but you've never been able to discredit the guy for the violent nature that he plays with every single play he's on the field. Okay? There was that awesome photo of him in the Houston Chronicle with his nose that was fucking smashed. Okay? I'm yeah. cursing a lot here because I'm pretty upset that he's in the <laughs> NFC West. Okay? This is just me going through it. But this is a guy, like, his nose is bleeding, and he's like, whatever, I'm back out there on the field. A guy who's been through countless surgeries, a guy that trains in a barn in the middle of Wisconsin in the wintertime, like Rocky Four montage kind of stuff. Like, this is a guy you want on your team. He brings an attitude. He brings a persona. And the Houston Texans are like, nah, anyone can get it. Anyone's expendable. It's not yeah. surprising to me that, that Deshaun Watson was like, I'm out. Nah, I saw how you did yeah. JJ. I'm out. I saw how you did Bill O'Brien. I'm out. I saw how you've done every single person. Hopkins. Hopkins. I saw how you... So Hopkins might actually be the the uh, uh, maybe not as big of a domino that's leading to this, but he may have been. He didn't have as much of a say yeah. as JJ did in being like, "Peace, I'm out." But maybe maybe a small. If 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 Hopkins wasn't the first domino, he may have been the finger that pushed the domino, or the shot across the bow. Right. So then, yeah, one of these other dominoes could fall and. That, that, to me, it just says something about where the NFL is game-wise right now. There's so much, so much emphasis on you need to get a franchise quarterback, right? When a few years ago, you need to get a like a franchise, like pass rusher. It needs to happen. And now, what are we seeing? Uh, quarterbacks that are great are in a tier of their own, and they're not a dime a dozen. They really aren't. Um, and if you swing and you miss on getting a franchise quarterback, you are struggling, right? Yeah. You can go out there and get a new pass rusher that's you know excellent in a four three or a three four scheme and has all the measurables you want and can go ahead and attempt to be Miles Garrett or JJ Watt. If you get one of those guys, fantastic, good for you. If you shoot for them and you and you miss, you're still going to end up pretty well. If you shoot for Deshaun Watson, you don't come anywhere close. You get Connor Cook. You can't yeah. win playoff games with, with the latter, only the former, <laughs> right? So it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And I think that brings us to one of the final points here as far as NFL free agency. This guy's still under contract, but it has not stopped this story from being one of the things that's blown up the airwaves. You've blown up my, my text machine. And I'm just like, Tim, quit speaking this into existence. I'm not a fan of it, but there has been drama with Russell Wilson and the Seahawks. And I gotta be honest, I'm team Russell at the, at this point. Okay. I, again, I have watched this guy for many years now behind hodgepodge offensive lines where some teams in the league spend $12 million on one offensive lineman and Seattle says, nah, we're going to go for the farm this time. We're going to spend $12 million on the entire offensive line. And the dude's running for his life back there. Doesn't mean, okay, that Russ doesn't make mistakes. 
All quarterbacks make mistakes. No one's perfect, okay? There's equal amounts of blame to go on between the Seahawks and Russell Wilson here. What I do think, though, is for a guy in his ninth, going into his 10th year in the league, it's not uncommon for someone to say, look what other quarterbacks are doing in the league right now. Tom Brady wanted a little more a little more firepower, didn't get it. He kind of didn't want to take less money. He decided to go to Tampa Bay. Look what they did. They won a Super Bowl. Deshaun Watson doesn't really like what the organization is doing. He's going to speak up. He's going to tell him where he wants to go. Do I think Russell Wilson is going to be a Seattle Seahawks this year? Of course I do. But do I think that Russ probably got to a point where he said, I'm one of the most hit quarterbacks in the league. Some of those are on me, and I know that. And, I, and I'll come out and say that. But when you look at the pro football focus grades, and I encourage you to do this the next time the Seattle Seahawks are on primetime football, you will not find more than one or two, but usually one offensive lineman that is in the top 10 PFF grade. Most of them are like, you know, 33 out of 34, 119th out of 135. I understand that the offensive line position has been devalued in the fact that all the money goes to pass rushers. So nobody really wants to be an offensive lineman. They don't exactly grow in trees. There's not a whole bunch of six foot five, 380 pound dudes just growing on trees. I understand that. <laughs> but Russ is kind of at this, I don't know, maybe mid-career slump, right? Aaron Rodgers had one. Tom Brady had one. But they all had decent offensive lines. Maybe there was coaching. Maybe there was other things, injuries, that, that kind of led them to that. Russ decided, hey, we're going to go ahead and light the league on fire. Had a couple games where they misstepped, and then they just went right back to old typical Seahawks football, and there's there's definitely some, some tension there. I can't hate on Russ for wanting to have some consistency and just saying – Please stop giving me a Patrick offensive line. Give me something more. He wanted more superstars. They went and got Carl Dunlap. They went and got Jamal Adams. Then on the first round picks. So they don't exactly have a ton of leeway to work with. And by the way, you're paying Russell Wilson $40 million a year. When he came out and said, I want to go to the Bears or the Dolphins or the Saints, it's just like, or the Raiders. <laughs> Come on. You're not going back to Tom Cable, not offensive line, because he was the start of all these problems in Seattle. There might be some cultural differences that Seattle needs, but to be honest, Russ has always gotten knocked for not being loud enough, not being loud enough in terms of racial justice, which he changed, not being loud enough on aspects of the team, which he's changed. Now he's getting talked down for loud enough and not being his own player, his own individual, which I mean, I made the joke about, you know, trademark and let Russ cook, but go, go make your money, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I totally get that. He, I don't think he wants out. I think he wants to be heard. And if you read the fantastic article that Mike Sando and Michael Sean Dugar of The Athletic wrote, you will know that there is definitely something in that team that is off. And I, God yeah. damn it, again, the NFC West just just wish we could have a, an easy division. Just, just can't we be the NFC East for like one season? Come on. <laughs> I, uh, I think that this is, I, I think if he's not out this season, he's out next season. Because I don't really see any major changes. I see teams around him that he has to go up against, as you've already listed off, making changes. I think uh, Seattle's on a really short leash. But I also think if, you know, as we approach the end of free agency and the start of the season, some teams are going to start throwing him offers that might be too good to pass up. There are plenty of teams out there who are going to be looking for quarterbacks, uh, it might not be quite as easy if they if they don't make major moves. I don't even know if I would give them until the draft. If they don't make some major moves between now and the end of sort of or the start of the season, 
I, this is, in my opinion, his last season there. I don't think he's got... He's got love for Seattle because he's been there this whole time. But I don't know if he's got that much love for Seattle. Like you've seen the memes going around of what he looks like in the offseason and what he looks like when he's... You know, how many Super Bowls are you going to spectate before you're like, why are we doing things differently than what they're and doing? I, my- and I think that's that's why he's 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 finally said... He's going to go vocal with it, right? He's probably said something in the past to people internally thinking that the organization would take care of it. And again, that's the article from uh, Michael Sean Dugar, Mike Sando at The Athletic. They said, yeah, we got to the point where obviously things were changing. So Russ maybe in his camp decided to take it on the outside. And unfortunately, you know, even though the NFL is a, you know, has football in the sport, like, it's also a business. So there, there has to be some conjecture between like the players and the agents to try and force the organization to do what's best for them and also for the players. So there's going to be that give and take also. It's a fascinating yet also extremely terrifying aspect of it. When I got people like you sending me memes of Russell Wilson and other jerseys, I'm just not about it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> just uh, not about it. Dude, you're about to see what everyone's – and here's my prediction. No matter what team he's going to go through, Next, because he's not going to finish his career in Seattle, I don't think. He's not going to be the type that's going to retire. I think he'll just literally move on. Um, You'll feel what it's like for all those New England fans who have to, like... Don't even compare him! It's not even his team! What, for Tom Brady to be in another jersey? It'll 100% be the same for you. Oh, for Tom Brady to be in another jersey after he won you six Lombardis? Cry me a freaking river. Can somebody make note of this on the record? Sam is saying that it will not impact him the same way as it would New England fans when Sam goes or when uh when Russell Wilson goes, he'll be fine and let him ride off into the sunset and he won't root for him at all. I'm only that confident Carry because that I don't on. think it's gonna happen. I also I also bet it all on black and uh you know, my lucky numbers are two, four, seven, eighteen, and yeah. fifty five. Put him on the powerball, but And he yeah. lost his Super Bowl pick. Whatever. Yeah. Shit happens. <laughs> all right folks we're gonna wrap it up there we had more stuff to get to but already we're dragging on for about an hour and a half we know you guys got things to do so uh on the next episode we got season two episode two that's right we're big boys now we we, we go by seasons uh but no on the next episode uh we're gonna dive into a little bit of nba the season's kind of shaping up starting to give us you know who to look forward to for the playoffs. We got uh, hockey Bruins kind of coming out strong, holding the number one spot and slipping as of late. We got some coaching changeovers that seem to be maybe a little knee jerk reactions. And the second time a coach by the name of Claude Julian has been uh, given the boot, despite the team seemingly performing well. So we'll dive into all that. Also spoiler alert, little future planning. Sounds like we might try and mix in a little bit of uh, The Bachelor, both uh, leading into the final episode and recapping the season. So uh, that'll be uh, a a couple weeks from now. But something else to look forward to. If you guys are Bachelor fans, um, I'll be there. I'll be listening in. We're going to have our wives on as special (laughs) guests because I'm the odd man out here. Both Sam, uh, his amazing wife, and my wife, all of them are big-time Bachelor fans. I am not. But you're not yet. You're not yet. My wife has been trying as long as we've been in a relationship, and there are two of those seasons every single year. Uh, just it's just not happening. Uh, two. It makes me uncomfortable just to watch it. 
Two. Oh, my sweet summer child. There's like three or four. <laughs> I just I just asked him what the schedule looked like, and he was like, oh, no, 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 next week. And then he broke down what each episode was leading up to the finale. So Sam's in it uh, uh, real deep. So we thought it might be a good little idea to maybe kind of tie that in a little bit here. We know a lot of you guys are fans. Some of you guys might be closet fans. Uh, here's your outlet and your chance to listen to it. So uh, anyway... Look forward to that coming soon over the next few weeks. But next week we're gonna dive, uh, or in the next episode we're gonna, we might even record uh, another one this week. But we got some hockey coming. We got some NBA coming. We're gonna keep an eye on some of these free agency moves. I'm not one to really dive into a lot of those conversations until it all kind of shakes out because you never know what a team's gonna look like. We might look at the Cardinals right now and say, oh, look at them, they're poised to to go deep, and then they end up offloading a couple folks for some cap space. So we'll see what happens. But anyway. Glad to be back up uh, in the saddle, getting th- getting these things going. A uh, couple ideas we're spitballing to kind of bring you guys some content on a more regular basis, uh, you know, more than just one a week. So be on the lookout for those. But otherwise, uh, we will catch you guys uh, on the next episode. Don't forget, check out the Wicked Psych podcast. Check out her Instagram, Lauren DeCredico. She's at, at Wicked Psych. All things mental health related, sports psychology, getting you guys in the right mindset. Great content, great listen. She's just now getting her podcast up and running, but at some point we'll have her on the show as well, just to kind of go over sort of the state of mental health and sports and, uh, you know, things that she's picked up on over the years. But anyway, Sam, great to be back. Yeah, very great to be back. Shout out to Wicked Psych. Um, and you being a podcast coach, this is great. And the next episode, <laughs> which is going to be NBA, NHL, and Stouts. Look at Stouts. Peace. Waited for years. Many doubted we'd ever see it. But here it is. The return to glory. Glory.